Coming up today, how blood could be key in the fight against coronavirus. We explain how to level up your Zoom pub quiz experience and look at why you've been having so many weird lockdown dreams. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Templeton, and joining me this week are Matt Reynolds. Hello. Amit Katwala. Hello. And Vicky Turk. Hi. This was the week when Facebook said it would start to alert people who had read watched or shared coronavirus misinformation on its platform. The alert will come in the form of a newsfeed post encouraging people to share a World Health Organization myth-debunking webpage. Facebook was apparently unaware of the irony of it asking people to share more things on its platform to get us out of this mess. This is also the week when more European countries started to tentatively ease lockdown restrictions. Spain, Italy, Austria, Denmark, Norway and Poland are among those lifting some of their most restrictive measures as coronavirus case numbers fall. But it will be a long time before things turn back to normal and it looks like the lockdown in the UK will have to be extended before any rules are eased. And it was also the week when we found out that Greenland's ice sheet is melting at near record levels. So in July 2019, surface ice declined by 197 gigatons, which is equivalent to 80 million Olympic swimming pools worth of meltwater. So just a reminder that even with all the other chaos going on, climate change is still very much a thing. And finally, it was the week when Apple announced a new version of the iPhone SE, its smaller, cheaper model. The phone has got the same chip as the iPhone 11, but with a smaller screen size and a physical home button equipped with Touch ID. It doesn't have 5G, though. What a shame. Um, just before we started recording, um, Matt Reynolds, I hope you don't mind me bringing this up. You uh, gave us the shock information that you record the podcast standing at an ironing board. I do, yes. So, yeah, as, as Vicky kind of noted on Run the Zoom, which said I'm kind of looming over, over everyone. Um, but that's because, so I live in a one-bedroom flat. Uh, my girlfriend is in the other room. Apparently, I have a distracting, annoying voice. So I Can have to confirm. go into the other room. And it's, as, and as we've read on UK, it's bad, bad to sit in the bed and work. So instead, I noted our advice, and it said a... Um, a ironing board can be a substitute standing desk except my one's too low because um i can't really uh, as as Vicky knows i kind of loom over so that's that's a, a little insight into my setup and amit we were noting that um there were some magpies tweeting outside your window yes i've had a, i've had a magical week of trying to befriend the magpies uh, who are building a nest in preparation for uh hatch an egg hatching or laying an egg at some point soon apparently they tend to have young in april or may so i'm very excited well, great. We'll, uh, we'll check back in. We'll have a weekly Magpie update on the podcast um, to help get us through this difficult time. Uh, what did you learn this week, Vicky Turk? I learned a uh, sort of grim side effect of the coronavirus lockdown. This March was the first March without a school shooting in the US since 2002. This was pointed out by Washington Post's Robert Klemko on Twitter. 
this aside from this fact, um, gun sales in the US have actually seen a boost with the spread of coronavirus. And there were actually several incidents of shootings on school campuses last month, but they don't meet the criteria for an actual school shooting. Um, so, yeah, a bit of a sort of grim reality check on uh, another public health issue in the US in particular. Amit, can you uh, bring any facts to light that will brighten the mood? Uh, yeah, we, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's sort of, I'm not sure this quite helps uh, problem tackle the problem of uh, gun violence, but an extra 2.1 million people in the UK bought flour in the four weeks leading up to March 22nd, <laughs> which was a 92% increase on the same time last year. Um, pretty much everyone I know has started baking, uh, but obviously there's not really any flour at supermarkets. So people are going direct to kind of flour mills who are racing to retool their production lines to put flour into kind of the smaller one kilo bags that we're used to buying instead of the kind of big wholesale bags that they normally sell to bakers or to factories. Good flower fact. Matt Reynolds, what have you got? So, yeah, this is some uh, good news if you're Jeff Bezos. Um, so as most people know, most companies are seeing their valuation drop as the impact of coronavirus bites, but Amazon is experiencing a pretty significant boost. So Jeff Bezos' net worth uh, went up by almost $24 billion dollars in 2020 as people stuck at home under lockdown turned to Amazon, which pushed the firm's stock value to a all-time high. Uh, are any of us Jeff Bezos? Can we check? Uh, I'd have to double check, but I'm pretty sure no. Do you reckon he records podcasts standing at an ironing board? <laughs> Almost definitely not. There'll be a much <laughs> posher ironing board than the one that I've got. Never mind. Uh, I learned um, this week, uh, in fact, um, before I say my fact, should we should we have an agreement that we're no longer allowed to bring depressing facts onto the podcast? It, this is the worst time to make that kind of um, uh, decision. There's depressing facts are all there are. I mean, I'd say my fact was kind of positive because it's like there hasn't been a school shooting, but it's sort of, you know, obviously negative in highlighting the, the horrible reality of the status quo. Mm, mm. Well, let us know. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Would you like your facts merry or would you like them to reflect the uh, current state of the world um, and, and your mood? Let us know. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Um, to further uh, lower the mood. Lower the mood? Sure. The European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control estimates that for each confirmed case of coronavirus, a health service would need 14 to 24 separate sets of personal protective equipment every day. 14 to 24 sets per person infected. Um, when you consider that China is making 200 million sets of personal protective equipment every day and can't keep up with demand. It really just show the scale of the crisis that we have on our hands. That's why I say uh, it might be nice to have some happy facts, but I realise I'm, I'm part of the problem there. Uh, we'll take a quick moment here to plug the new issue of Wired magazine, which is out now. It came out a couple of days ago. Um, and for a limited time only, you can get a whole year of Wired magazine for the super low price of £12. That's only available in the UK. There are different subscription offers for the rest of Europe and the rest of the world, which you can check out if you're an international listener. But in the UK, we're selling it for £12 for a whole year. It's a great way to support our journalism. So if you like what we do, please do consider paying for it. Vicky, tell us a little bit about what's in the latest issue of the magazine. Yeah, so our cover story, this issue, um, we take an in-depth analytical look at Apple 
and how it's shaking up its business model with the launch of many new services and several important staff changes at high levels. And we're sort of asking the question, has Tim Cook bitten off more than he can chew expanding into all of these new areas? And where does the company go from here? We've also got a great feature by Amit on quantum computing. Uh, We've got a piece about an economist who has a radical plan to fix wealth inequality. And I wrote something about trains. There we go. To subscribe and get a whole year of Wired magazine for just £12, head to wired.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Matt Reynolds, what's that URL? That is wired.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Our first story this week is about blood plasma and coronavirus treatments. Matt Reynolds, tell us a little bit about what you've been looking into this week. Absolutely. So before we kind of get stuck into what's happening right now, let me take you on a little trip down, uh, not memory lane, because none of us are 102 years old, but you know, into history at least. Um, and the worst pandemic in the modern era, which I guess most people know is the Spanish flu pandemic. So in 1918, as this pandemic was racing around the world, it eventually killed maybe 50 million people, we think. Uh, a handful of hospitals in America, uh, running out of other options, opted for a really experimental treatment for people suffering with the influenza. And their idea was, uh, let's transfuse these people with the blood of people who have had Spanish flu and survived. Now, although you know, in comparison with today's standards, these trials are really quite um, shaky. They did have a really, really surprising result. So patients who received blood from Spanish flu survivors had a much, much lower uh, death rate than those who went without. I think, uh, off the top of my head, the, the survival rate was about 16, uh, sorry, 16% of those who had the transfusions died compared to 37% of those that didn't have the transfusion. It was, it was something on that order. Maybe those figures are a little bit off. Now, fast forward you know, back to our current crisis, coronavirus, and health authorities all over the world are wondering if this technique could actually help with our current pandemic. So we don't have a vaccine or another treatment on the horizon. So people are saying, could infusions of blood plasma help stop, uh, hospitals, you know, stop hospitals filling with COVID-19 patients? So does this does this work in kind of the same way as a vaccine where you kind of have, you know, if you get the disease, your body makes stuff that helps fight it. And then by transferring the blood, you can transfer that to another person. Yeah, basically. So it's a little bit different, but the kind of core principles um, you know, are the same. So so what's kind of important is that the blood transfusions we're talking about, they don't necessarily involve every bit of the blood. Although I think in the Spanish flu example, it, you know, there were whole blood transfusions. But the really important bit is the blood plasma, which makes up more than half of the, the weight of blood. Um, and it's mostly salt, uh, water, enzymes, and importantly, antibodies. And these are the things that we're really, really interested in. So like you said, Amit, um, you, you know, the way that antibodies work is when your body is exposed to a virus or another pathogen, it creates these antibodies um, that basically help your body remember what the virus looked like so the next time it encounters that virus um, it can fight back without you ever getting ill right that's how we have um, immunity against measles or chickenpox or you, you know certain types of flu uh, you know and that's how vaccines work they try to provoke this antibody response now the idea behind uh, this technique which is called convalescent plasma therapy is that the blood of patients who have recently recovered from a viral infection will be really, really rich in these neutralizing antibodies against the pathogen, which in this case is the virus that causes COVID-19. So the idea is, if you give this plasma to patients who are in the early stages of disease, it will stop them getting as ill 
Or if you give it to people perhaps who are likely to be exposed to the illness, there's a hope that it might stop them getting ill altogether. So what do we know about this in the context of COVID-19? Do we know if it works? Yeah, so we've got a you know a kind of uh, small and and you know slightly kind of um, shaky body of evidence. It does it does go back, like I said, to the Spanish flu, and we have examples from SARS and MERS, these much more recent coronavirus uh, outbreaks that suggest that um, infusions of blood can boost the immune systems uh, of patients and actually, yeah, as I said, provide uh, immunisation to those that haven't uh, contracted it. When it comes to COVID-19 specifically, so in late January, January, we started to see hospitals across China begin using this convalescent uh, blood plasma as a treatment for COVID-19. And in in recent weeks, uh, a few other countries have followed suit. And the kind of main basis for this is a kind of handful of trials from uh, Wuhan and Shanghai. And although they only used a handful of patients, they they, they had massive attention really because we had no other treatment, um, you know, uh, you know, up for grabs, so and people were like, "Well, this really seems like a good idea." And just to give you a bit more detail on that. So, in one Chinese trial, they found that you know, giving severely ill patients one dose of blood plasma, it was only 200 milliliters of uh, blood plasma, significantly elevated the levels of those neutralizing antibodies that you kind of need to be able to uh, fight off the illness, and it led to the disappearance of the virus in seven days, while clinical improve, um, cl- clinical symptoms improved within three days. So, this strong suggestion that you give the people this antibody-rich blood, it meant their bodies were able to kind of fight off the virus themselves. But this is at very, very early stages. I mean, the virus is at very, very early stages as well. And there's a real keenness to get treatments out there that can help improve the situation. So how close are we to being able to get on with using this treatment on a wide scale? Or is that just not something that we're looking at yet? Yeah, exactly. So that Chinese trial that I mentioned, although that's one of the most encouraging pieces of evidence for this, um, you know, for this technique, it was a really, really small trial. So it was just 10 uh, patients. And as they note in that, um, in the right of that trial, you really need something much, much higher, you know, much higher bar of evidence before you can really say, okay, this is a decent uh, treatment. Luckily, work to find that evidence is, you know, underway. So as of April the 6th, it was reported that there are 19 clinical trials um, of convalescent plasma therapy already taking place. This is in China, uh, the United States, Italy, Iran, Mexico and Colombia, and there are more planned. Um, and in fact, this week, Italy is launching a nationwide uh, initiative, uh, which is coordinated by a team at the University uh, at Pisa University Hospital. They'll basically use convalescent plasma in hospitals across the um, country's 20 regions, uh, you know, the 20 regions in the country. And this is alongside a trial that's already happening in Lombardy, which has you know, been the epicenter of the Italian outbreak. A little bit closer to home here, the NHS is currently seeking donors for two trials of its own, which will compare convalescent uh, plasma against other experimental medications such as antiviral uh, drugs. Now, the thing that people are quite excited about is that what we kind of thought is that, well, we knew that if you give people antibodies, uh, they'll be able to fight off the disease. you know, and because we, we know that's how kind of vaccines work, and we thought, okay, well, if you give them in the early stages, it might give their immune system a bit of a boost. Now, what people are finding quite exciting about this research is it suggests that even if someone is really ill 
And, you know, when their body's not doing a very good job of fighting back, it might be able to help people even in this situation. And of course, what we're finding is with COVID-19, loads of people are, um, you know, relatively speaking, have very severe illnesses, right? The people that can fight it off already, they're usually okay. The people that end up in hospital, they, they do tend to need, um, you know, more help. So people are saying, actually, if this could be used to treat severely ill people, that could be a really, really potentially interesting application of this therapy. I guess one of the problems is actually finding these people to donate this plasma, right? Because, like, at the moment in the UK, certainly, we're only really testing people that are in hospital already and are therefore quite ill already. But actually what you need to do is find people who've fought it off relatively easily but get them at the right moment so their their antibody count is still high. So is that going to be feasible? Yeah, exactly. That's the really, really tricky thing. So, the, you know, what they say is that you want people that are in this hyperimmune state, and actually, not everyone gets like that. Some people are able to fight off the disease, but they never really generate loads of antibodies, so they wouldn't be that useful. Um, other people just get ill, and they get so ill that actually, uh, it suggests that their bodies weren't able to produce enough antibodies really to, uh, you know, fight it off effectively. So, you want to find these small section of people that have this kind of hyperimmune response. Now, the only way you're going to really find that out is if you're testing people and you're testing people's blood. And we've brought this on the show before about these difficulties um, around these uh, antibody tests. Now, there's another problem as well. So so that's one problem there. It's like, how do you find these people that have actually had it? How do you find them at the right time and make sure you can kind of get their blood? Maybe antibody tests will um, help us get on top of that, but we're probably not there yet. Now, there's another problem. Is there some suggestion um, from research in Italy that actually maybe it matters uh, exactly what, uh, you know, where they are geographically, because basically uh, simple viruses like this, they, the genetic, uh, their genetics mutate really, really quickly, not to a significant extent, like we're not talking about, oh, the virus has got 10 times more deadly or it's way worse, but there are different, ever so slightly different versions of the virus circulating in different areas. And so people think that that might make a difference in the antibody response. So you might want to get antibodies that are more local to your area. So, for instance, as a pandemic in Italy worsened, we're talking about um, in last month in March, China reportedly offered uh, to ship 90 tonnes of convalescent plasma to Italian hospitals. But this uh, offer was rejected since it was shown that actually we don't think this can be used here because we think the strain that's circulating in Italy is a little bit different. So actually, there's this added problem. That you might need to have people that are... Um, you know, local, and you've got to kind of match up this blood. So there are some kind of barriers to overcome. And, and as the NHS trial shows, you'll be weighing up, well, is this kind of better? Is it more feasible than maybe actually just using a drug we already have? People trying, you know, uh, anti-malaria treatments, antiviral treatments. And, you know, until we start to do randomized control trials that compare these, we won't really know. But there are definitely, um, you know, some limitations with blood therapy. I'm going to ask that really irritating press conference question that uh, keeps on annoying everyone in the scientific community. When can we expect something like this to be rolled out so that it's usable across the population? Or, or is this something that will only ever be useful in certain circumstances? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really good point. You know, I would say, you know, I would say I am not able to give a date. <laughs> I, I don't know. But there are a couple of things that make, make me think that actually this might be a viable treatment. Um, you know, one of those is just the sheer length of uh, time that we're probably going to be dealing with coronavirus. Right? I've talked before, but there's probably not going to be a vaccine for 12 months, 18 months, maybe even two years. So we need probably some kind of treatment in the interim because, you know, the death rate from coronavirus is worryingly high. People that get severely ill from this disease have a really high chance of dying. So we need some kind of uh, treatment. 
Now, the second thing is we are quite good at screening blood and getting blood into people, right? We already have the blood donor network. We know how to screen blood. We know how to make it safe and we know how to get it into people and also get it out of other people at scale. So if, as Amit said, we can find a way to work out who these people are, it in some ways is kind of conceivable as opposed to perhaps ramping up production of a different type of drug. You know, we've seen how difficult it is to, you know, even increase production of PPE or masks or these things that we already have. So there are some reasons to think that actually um, in the long run, maybe plasma therapy could be a you know, useful treatment. But I mean, we're not talking about next month. We're not talking about the next two months. You know, we're talking, you know, six months, a year down the line. But actually, these are the kind of timescales that the coronavirus uh, pandemic kind of operates in. So it's not quite as bad as it sounds, I think podcast at wired.co.uk with any nastily complicated questions about coronavirus treatments for Matt Reynolds or any comments on that story. Our second story this week is something a little bit lighter, or, or maybe it's not, the serious business of pub quizzes on lockdown. Vicky, you've been doing some in-depth research into how everyone can have better virtual pub quizzes. Yeah, it seems to be the kind of go-to activity of choice under lockdown, a virtual pub quiz with your friends or perhaps even with strangers. Have you guys been swept up in the craze? Have you been doing virtual pub quizzes? I am doing about three a week, which is about three more than I would normally do <laughs> in a normal week. So, yeah, I'm getting, uh, yeah, I'm enjoying them, but maybe I'm getting a little bit of pub quiz fatigue at this point. I've had a couple of them, but they've, they've all been quite basic. Someone reading a list of questions, everyone having a couple of drinks, Whereas I'd expect, and I'm hoping what you're going to uh, teach us all about is some of the smarter stuff that we can be doing of using video and audio and internet connections to do clever stuff that you can't do down the bunch of grapes or whatever, um, the king's head at the end of your road, right? That's what we're going to find out. Yeah, yeah, it is interesting, actually. There are, you know... In some ways, you can um, transfer the regular pub quiz format to a virtual version, but there's also lots of fun you can have that perhaps you wouldn't be able to do down your local boozer. Matt Reynolds, have you been pub quizzing? Yeah, I mean, I would say, to, you know, to add to James's, um, you know, technical difficulties, uh, we, we tried to do a pub quiz, uh, a family pub quiz with uh, a music round and it involved, you know, trying to play music from one device into another device. And there's all kinds of, you know, crackling and not knowing where the speakers are. I think also sometimes you have this generational thing where if you're getting grandparents on Zoom and trying to get people involved, it all comes a bit difficult, you know, difficult. So I have to say... Um, the process has been a little bit more frustrating than uh, the usual uh, pub quiz experience. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it, yeah, it certainly seems a thing that everyone is doing right now. So why are we all doing it, Vicky? Why is everyone going pub quiz mad, do you think? Well, I mean, my, my theory is, you know, it's a really good way to give structure to a sort of virtual hangout, especially when everyone's got a lot more time on their hands, but no one really has too much to report on what they're doing. It's quite a fun way to pass time. Um, and I think it's actually quite well suited to virtual tools because often, you know, if you're having a group chat over Zoom or Hangouts or Skype or whatever, freeform conversation can actually be quite difficult because, you know, you have to be really strict with turn taking and stuff. It doesn't work if you end up talking over each other. It can, it can be quite unnatural in a sense. Whereas having that structure of a quiz, it actually suits the format quite well. Um, my theory is it's kind of like playing video games socially, but for people who don't play video games. So you're kind of participating in a shared activity. You've got that shared goal and you can chat on the side, but it, it sort of just gives you something to do. It's, it's not a nice distraction, right? What are the, um, 
what were the kind of best tools to use? Like, I think the ones I've done have mostly been over Zoom, and I think I did one over Facebook Live. But are there other tools that people should be using and, and like leveraging to make their quiz better? Yeah, so there's lots of different tools you can use and which one you want depends on a few factors. So you need to think through the kind of format of your quiz. You need to take into account how many people are you going to have on there? How do you want them to be able to interact with you? Uh, I spoke to Andrew Wild Goose, who runs, he goes by the name Goose, uh, and he runs Goose's Quizzes, which is a big pub quiz company in Scotland that usually does um, hundreds of quizzes in pubs in Scotland, but they've been doing a daily virtual quiz every night in lockdown. Um, And they chose to use Twitch, um, which is good if you've got a big audience, because obviously anyone can tune in and watch that live. It's also compatible across different devices. So it's easy to put on your TV, which a lot of um, other alternatives aren't. Um, And people can still communicate with you, but just over text chat. Um, so they could, like when you've got that many people, you don't really want people being able to butt in on audio or video and so on. But if you're at home using something like Twitch isn't going to be practical, right? You're going to want something a bit more like intimate, right? Yeah. I mean, probably if you're just doing it with friends, um, that kind of video and audio interaction is a large part of the appeal, right? You want to be able to see people and talk to people. So you probably want to use something like Zoom, Google Hangouts or House Party. Um, but keep in mind what you actually want to do in the quiz so for example if you want to do a picture round where people have to identify what's in an image or name the characters or something you probably don't want to be holding up a piece of paper to your webcam that's not going to work very well the best thing is to use a tool that has a screen sharing option Um, so you need to choose one that does that the audio round if you're doing a music round um, as James and Matt I think you pointed out Um, It doesn't really work too well if you sort of play an intro and hold your phone to your laptop microphone or something like that. It's it's really not going to go very well. Um, I haven't found like an amazing solution for this. It is quite tricky to do that classic pub quiz music round. If you've got audio editing software, you might be able to actually cut a track into a little section and share that file or play it for people. Um, Otherwise, some screen sharing tools if you share your screen while you're, say, um, watching a video or using a media player, will automatically also share the audio. Um, so play around with that, see if it works. But just remember, if you're screen sharing, you don't want to be giving away like the name of the song if that's the question that you're asking. So it's worth like doing a little, little bit of um, trial and testing before you actually do the quiz to spare yourself any embarrassment. Um, and one of, these, one of the advantages of Zoom, actually, is that as the host, you have a lot of control over everyone else on the call. Um, So for instance, you can mute other people. If things are getting a bit rowdy, if people are having a few too many drinks, if you've got lots of people on the Zoom call, um, you can easily kind of just take that control. Um, But a disadvantage of that platform is if you're using the free version, you do get kicked off after 40 minutes. So you need to kind of weigh up all these things and figure out what's going to work best for your situation. So I think anyone that's been to a few pub quizzes, maybe been to ones that didn't work so well, knows that a quiz is only as good as the questions that you're asking. Ask something too difficult and you're going to kind of alienate people, it's too easy, it kind of gets a bit boring. So where should you be going to to uh, find these questions and how do you make sure you're pitching them at the perfect level? 
There is a real knack to it. And the main thing is choosing questions that are at that right difficulty level. So you don't want them to be impossible for people to get because that very quickly gets boring. Um, but you also don't want it to be too easy because, you know, people shouldn't be able to just answer them all straight away. Um, people tend to fall into the trap of asking questions that they themselves don't know the answer to. Because if you're like looking around for questions and you think, oh, that's really interesting. Um, but that can end up pushing up the difficulty level and making it a bit too hard. Um, so, you know, you want to choose questions that actually people may know the answer to. You want questions that, well, first they have to have a specific answer. You know, if it's too vague or there's too many possible answers, you're going to end up squabbling over points and whether someone's right or not. So you need something that has quite a well-defined, specified answer. And you're basically looking for questions that people will have known the answer to at some point but need to recall. So the ones that make you think like, oh, I know that, I know that, what is it? But you know, you're struggling to just kind of bring it to the front of your brain. Those are the ones that really get people excited about pub quizzes and make it an enjoyable experience. So a good thing is, you know, things that you learned at school, those kind of, <laughs> that general knowledge that everyone shares, but may struggle with. Even things like math questions can be quite fun in that respect. Um, and, you know, just the sort, sort of right level of difficulty. This isn't supposed to be an exam. It is supposed to be fun. And the advantage of doing it with friends means that you can sort of tailor topics and themes a bit more around what you all enjoy. So you can throw in questions that maybe evoke a bit of a sense of nostalgia. Like if you all visit, went on a trip together, you could do a round specifically about that country um, and things like that, which obviously you wouldn't be able to do in a general pub quiz. I did um, a pub quiz for my partner's birthday and uh, structured a whole round around their life and interests and they lost, <laughs> which was uh, just terrific. Um, but it was a good way of the next thing uh, that we should talk about is cheating, right? Mm. Um, the, the reason that I wanted to do a round like that is I figured it wasn't the sort of stuff that people could easily Google, even if they were tempted to um, but isn't that a bit of a problem here? You can't really see what people are up to. So cheating's pretty easy. Yeah, I mean, you need to decide, first of all, how you're going to mark answers. Are you just going to let people mark their own answers? Are you going to get them to submit them to you as the quiz master somehow, maybe over email? Um, so um, Andrew Wild Goose's quiz uses Google Forms. Everyone submits them and then they put that in a spreadsheet and mark it. Um, obviously, if it's just with close friends, you maybe don't want to go to such effort. At the end of the day, you do kind of need to trust that people aren't just going to cheat. Um, I mean, there's kind of no point participating if that's what you're going to do because it's just not fun. Um, so I think, you know, you do have to have an element of trust there, really. But you can, as you say, James, make some more ungoogleable rounds. So the pitch round is a good option. The music round is a good option, presuming people don't just use Shazam. Um, you can do things like word games, anagrams, that kind of thing, which are a bit more lateral thinking or, you know, what connects these three figures and things like that, um, which you can't just type into Google and get the answer. You actually have to engage brain. Um, and you can do other things that you couldn't do at an actual pub quiz. So one I've heard of, which sounds really fun, is a bit more of a almost physical challenge. Um, it's, you know, you ask people to go and find a specific object in their house and hold it up to the camera and the one who gets it first wins. So you could say, you know, um, a teaspoon and everyone has to dash and get a teaspoon and um, the first person 
to, to show that they have collected it wins. Um, and you can really personalize it too. So you could go through people's old Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram posts, get everyone to guess who said what years and years ago. Um, you know, a little bit of emotional intelligence is required here. Obviously, don't <laughs> reveal anything upsetting. Maybe stay clear of posts that mention ex-partners and that kind of thing. Um, but as long as you don't hurt people's feelings, that, that can give it a bit of a personal note. And obviously, tying any good quiz together is the host. Um, it sounds like Goose is, is a seasoned pub quiz host, so I'm sure he's got his technique down. But for those of us who are, you know, stepping into the role for the first time, what makes someone a good host? Yeah, so Goose's philosophy, actually, I found um, the way he put it really well. He said, you know, he sees himself as a facilitator, not an entertainer. Um, so he's like, you know you need to leave people time to think about the questions, to discuss the questions if they're working with other people, but you don't have to like fill all of that space with you talking. Like this isn't supposed to be a stand-up show and it is supposed to be social. It's not just supposed to be like, you know, the host kind of, you know, doing a performance, right? Um, so you want a little bit, you want to kind of allow a little bit of chatter um, with you, but also with everyone between everyone else. Um, and just leave that time for people to do their answers. Um, I think it's probably it probably is easier to have one person be the host rather than try and share hosting. You can sort of, you know, maybe take it in turns to do around each. But one of the problems there is technological. So, you know, if you're sharing, if you're using um, a platform like Zoom and you want to mute other people, you need to be the host of the Zoom to do that. I think you can kind of delegate it to other people, get it, but it gets a bit tricky. Um, and that's particularly important with things if you're doing, for example, a music round. You need to mute everyone else because if you don't and someone sort of shouts, oh, I know this one, everyone's going to hear them and not the music and it's just going to kind of end up a bit disastrous. So as a host, you do kind of have to take charge a bit, which I guess can be a bit weird if you're sort of, you know, just chatting with friends, um, but it really does make for a better experience. You might want to consider screen sharing text versions of the questions as well, just in case someone's audio is bad to make sure that everyone can get the questions. You're not having to repeat them a million times. Um, and um, yeah, if, if, you, if no one wants to kind of take on that responsibility, the other option, of course, is just to stream a quiz that someone else is doing together. So, for example, the Goose Quiz on Twitch. Um, there's loads of them out there, whatever you're into on Facebook, on Instagram. Um, so, you know, that, that's kind of the easy way out if this all sounds a bit too much like hard work. A lot of the pitfalls that you're talking about with Zoom come down to people being rubbish so so long as people don't have really rubbish friends then it should be quite easy to have a successful pub quiz on zoom right well yeah but you know if you're kind of drinking at the same time then people can get chatty and you know it is a bit different to just being in um there in person because when you're in a group in person you can kind of just like whisper someone in someone else something in someone else's ear you can break out into like little mini groups you just can't do that over technology um so it does require a little bit more forward planning i see you've put down in the notes um that you're going to ask us to give you our best lockdown related quiz team names is that a leading question do you have an especially good <laughs> lockdown related quiz team name vicky I, I've been going under uh, sourdough starter for 10. That That is pretty good, actually. Yeah, fair play. Um, can anyone beat that? I'm assuming we can't. Um, we are, we are we're social quiz dancing. 
That's pretty good, <laughs> I suppose. Right. Um, I can't, your... I have nothing. Yeah, I, I was trying, I saw that question, it loomed at me, like, yeah, in a disturbing <laughs> way, and I was thinking of puns. I only got as far as quarantine. It, it doesn't, it's not really fully rounded, is it? Um, it's anyway, quite bad. Yeah, it I, sounds I like half encourage... a name, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I would encourage this as maybe finish off the other half. Um, you know, maybe we should host a Wired pub quiz. That's not a bad idea. I mean, everyone did very much enjoy the uh, end of year Wired quiz. Um, if you would like, I hadn't even thought of that. If you would like us to do um, our very own version of uh, a Zoom pub quiz on the podcast um, one week in the future, do let us know. Podcast at wired.co.uk. And if you've got any tips that Vicky hasn't covered for the Zoom based pub quizzes or pub quizzes on any other platforms that you've been having while in lockdown, send them our way and we'll share the wealth. Podcast at wired.co.uk. We do love hearing from you. Our third story this week. Um, is about weird dreams, Amit. Yeah, that's right. So have you guys been having super weird dreams since we've been on lockdown? It's been, I guess it's been three weeks now. So yeah, I, like I've heard loads of people kind of talking about the fact they've had like bizarre dreams, but I don't know if you guys have had any. Um, I don't dream. Uh, so, well, I never remember them. Like very, very occasionally I'll have like a fleeting memory of a dream, but um, I'm such a heavy sleeper that it just never happens. I feel like we need to unpack that a little bit, but maybe, maybe <laughs> this isn't the forum for it. <laughs> what about you, Vicky or Matt? Um, I've had quite mundane dreams, actually, since lockdown. They have been quite vivid, though. I'm trying to remember recent ones. I, I dreamt that my friend made me Pop-Tarts. Um, that was quite enjoyable. Um, I also dreamt that I fell off a climbing wall to my death, which was less enjoyable. <laughs> like, what happened when you fell to your death? Did you like wake up at the moment of impact or... Just yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe I, I don't know. It's like that, you know, the classic falling dream, right? Where, you, yeah, I assumed I would have would have died had it been real. Um. So yeah, I, I think actually a little bit similar to, to James. I seem to remember oh, I've had all these kind of weird dreams, um, but then I can't remember them uh, in the morning. So yeah, or is it? I can remember them when I wake up, and then I can they kind of forgotten. I think I had a weird one. I think I had one when I was like riding a giraffe. Um, Amit, please save us from that awful thing where people talk about their (laughs) dreams. Why are Um, we talking about this? Well, the reason we're talking about this is that in recent weeks, Google searches for COVID-19 dreams and coronavirus dreams have seen considerable spikes. Um, Worldwide searches for nightmares are on an upward trajectory. The R Dream subreddit, where people go to discuss their dreams, uh, is getting hundreds of responses instead of, you know, a handful. Uh, there's even a Twitter account called at um, I Dream of COVID-19, which is kind of collating people's weird experiences uh, of the dreams they're having. There's been dreams about exploding cows. There's been dreams about Oprah on a murderous rampage. And then there's been kind of like more mundane dreams about dreams about getting a bad haircut or getting a tesco delivery slot my wife woke up the other day and told me that she dreamt about buying detail sanitizing wipes at asda um so the whole gamut of, uh, of weird dreams someone's gonna turn this into one of those really really awful christmas books that an elderly relative gets for you in a couple of years aren't they it's, it's inevitable all good twitter accounts turn into bad christmas books so why is this happening amit it can't be some coincidence that we're all those of us that can remember them are suddenly having weird coronavirus dreams. 
Yeah, there's, there's a couple of theories. The simplest theory is that we're, we're basically just a lot of us are getting a lot more sleep than usual. So like if you're if you're working from home, you know, you're um, not having to commute, uh, which means that basically means for, for me, it's meant basically getting up an hour later than I normally would. So sleeping a lot more. Uh, and, you know, people aren't going out the weekend, so they, their weekends are kind of less disrupted than they might be if you were, you know, going out to nightclubs or going out drinking or whatever. Um, so it means that people are kind of sca- catching up on sleep for the first time in a while. Um, so according to Deirdre Barrett, who's a psychology professor at Harvard Medical School, that means that the extra sleep means that we're getting kind of more rapid eye movement sleep. Um, so in a typical sleep cycle, you kind of alternate between light sleep and kind of deep REM sleep. And REM sleep is when dreams tend to be the most vivid. So if you sleep longer, it kind of follows that you're going to have more periods of REM sleep and therefore you're going to have more dreams and more vivid dreams and more kind of more chances to, to have weird dreams, basically. But it's interesting because I get the sense that also, at least anecdotally, you talk to people. You know, I saw a study today that said uh, I think half of British adults were reporting uh, higher than usual anxiety. So it seems everyone's really uh, stressed and some people especially um, are in really stressful circumstances. So not just getting more sleep but to the quality of our everyday lives is that having an impact as well yeah so that's the other theory so you know one theory is that yeah we're still sleeping more the other theory is that actually we're sleeping or at least maybe we're sleeping more but the sleep is more disrupted so obviously a lot of people are under a lot more stress than they usually are right now whether it's because they're working in the healthcare sector or you know they're worried about losing their job or they've been furloughed or they're worried about you know the kids not going to school or they're worried about, you know, their health or the health of their loved ones. So, you know, people are under a lot of stress um, and stress can affect dreams in two ways. So firstly, it makes you more likely to kind of wake up in the middle of the night. So therefore, you're more likely to wake up during one of those REM sleep cycles when you're dreaming. And when you wake up during an REM cycle, you're more likely to kind of have a, your brain's more likely to remember what you've been dreaming about because, you know, you're in the middle of it when you get woken up. Um so that's one thing. Um, the second thing is that stress can create more kind of vivid and more emotional dreams. So Deirdre Barrett, the Harvard professor, has been asking people to submit accounts of their COVID-related dreams online. Uh, and from the analysis that she's done so far, she says that those dreams kind of tend to be way more anxious on average than a normal set of dreams. So she's been comparing the dreams that people have been having for the last few weeks to the dreams that people might have, you know, during more normal times. Um, and what she's seen particularly is that frontline medical staff are having you know anxiety dreams basically so around 10 percent of the dreams that she's been sent so far have come from health workers um and she says you know they're basically just having nightmares um and she draws a parallel between the the trauma the traumatized dreams that these people are having with the dreams of uh the dream diaries of you know world war ii prisoners of war or people left with ptsd after the first gulf war so we see a kind of a similar pattern of trauma and of vivid dreams about the trauma. So are these dreams potentially a way of almost like processing what's going on in real life? If you've got one of those frontline jobs, which is really tough and difficult, is is that kind of your brain's way of, of dealing with it in a way? Yeah, so that's, pus- just, that's pus- definitely one aspect of it. And actually, it could also be a way into to getting us to talk more about our dreams obviously you know as we discovered about five minutes ago it's not normally the done thing to kind of talk about your dreams at length but some researchers kind of hope that if we talk about our dreams more openly we can increase our levels of empathy Uh, and that's something that could be really important at the moment because you know we're in this weird situation where the health of the nation as a whole kind of relies on us all looking out for each other but 
uh, in the West, um, rates of empathy have been kind of declining for the last 40 years in what some people have called a, a narcissism epidemic. Um, so the researchers hope that by kind of getting people to talk about their dreams, they can kind of develop some empathy for what other people are feeling and maybe we can kind of try and reverse that trend and, you know, it might have a lasting effect. Well, let's reverse the trend right now. Podcast.wired.co.uk if you want to share any of your weird dreams, if you think it's appropriate. Have you been flying through the sky on drafts or um, buying Dettol bacteria wipes or getting a friend to make you Pop-Tarts? Do let us know um, your thoughts on that story and your experience of dreaming and sleeping through the pandemic podcast at wired.co.uk we love getting your emails um which brings us seamlessly onto your emails there was um a veritable smorgasbord of correspondence from everyone in the email inbox this week so thanks very much for that and sorry that we don't have time to read out all of them on the show um i'll start off with a couple about the 5g coronavirus conspiracy theory sky writes in with some thoughts about what big tech platforms can do to tackle the problem she writes i think social media companies do have a responsibility to tackle this issue it's causing real world problems not just vandalism but the impact is having on individuals my brother they say is indoctrinated by these conspiracies and is so scared and angry that it's having an enormous impact on his mental health they go on to say that they think that removing or banning the content isn't enough though from being inside some of these circles they say they know that um every time these videos are posted it only serves as proof to the community that some um that the truth is being suppressed so deleting them isn't enough they think that um, there needs to be a coordinated effort to debunk these theories and social media companies should work to reduce the spread of conspiracy theories both algorithmically and by introducing new features and to boost the spread of unbiased expert opinions which debunk the claims that these theories make we also had an email from nick about the 5g coronavirus conspiracy theory he says that in his home country of cyprus where there's currently a curfew in place at night people believe that telecoms companies are going out and installing 5g towers while they're stuck at home as a result he says telecoms companies have had to release statements explaining what they are doing and to try and persuade people to be a bit less hysterical Mark in Spain wrote in, he says he loves our podcasts, even when they go on for quite long and would even listen to more than one a week if we did more. Great. Thanks, Mark. Um, He's in Spain and he says, obviously, COVID-19 is a recurrent topic there. Um, In Spain, people are not allowed to go out once once a day to exercise. It's just more restricted situations for which they're allowed to go out, such as shopping or medical emergencies. Amazon is still continuing to deliver packages, but with a strict no contact delivery procedure. He's happy that he's got a home pull-up bar, treadmill and some elastic bands so he can keep training and working out daily, just, uh, just like before the pandemic. So good to hear that people are still staying healthy, staying in shape. And Matt, you had an email from Jeremy. I did, yes, and Jeremy wrote in to say, I've been listening to your podcast from South Africa for a few weeks as my family will be moving to the UK once the virus is over. And Jeremy goes on to talk about, um, uh, how, saying how he read a study about, or uh, heard about a study that talks about this BCG uh, vaccine, which is this um, uh, vaccine for TB. And there's lots of talk around whether there might be a correlation between uh, rates of BCG uh, vaccine and um, 
lower rates of severe illness with coronavirus. Luckily, Jeremy, uh, we have an article on this very topic. So, you know, I'd encourage you to go to wired.co.uk to kind of read the full uh, lowdown of how that shakes down. Essentially, um, we're not really sure whether BCG vaccine is really due to this or there might be lots of confounding factors. It's really difficult um, to say why one country has a response and another doesn't. And it probably isn't quite as simple as a vaccine. So do read that story. Um, Jeremy finishes off by saying, here in South Africa, we are in the third week of a five-week lockdown and our rules are very strict. We aren't allowed out at all to exercise or walk our dogs. Britain seems to have a much more relaxed policy. So really interesting to get a sense of um, how different countries are approaching lockdown. And finally, Amit, we had uh, an email from Olivier in Montreal. Yeah, so he wrote in to say that he's an avid listener and that he normally visits London once a year, but he had to cancel this year's trip. And he's got a question that I'm going to open up to the floor. He says, what impact do you think that reduced international travel will have on culture and technology? And how will that impact differ for hub cities like London versus uh, more remote areas that used to have more people leaving than coming? Are we going to kind of see a rebalancing? It's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, you've got some countries like the UK or Japan or Mexico where these huge metropolises have such an outsized impact on the economy and society of the countries in which they exist. But it's so hard to see to the other side of this pandemic. I mean, we're talking about two years down the line. It's hard to even think what it's going to be like two weeks down the line. So that's a very um, roundabout way of saying I don't really have an answer, um, probably because I'm not smart enough. I think a lot of it will depend on like the infrastructure that's in place in various territories in the sense that like, you know, I think even now we've seen working from home is doable, but it's a bit of a strain because of, you know, our rubbish broadband infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I don't know whether I actually have that much long term impact in, in the sort of medium term, but maybe it will kind of encourage investment in those areas. I'm really interested to see the long term impact on travel and tourism, obviously, You know, people are not able to travel at the moment. That's also having an economic impact, not only on directly on travel companies and airlines and train companies, but also on lots of uh, places that rely heavily on tourism for their economy. Um, And I do wonder if we'll be going back to our old ways when it comes to, you know, how the ease of travel and whether we'll be able to do that quite as freely as before. It's a really, really interesting question. Thank you very much to everyone that wrote in this week. And again, apologies for not being able to read out all of your emails on the show. Podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on any of the stories that we talked about this week or in recent editions of the podcast. Um, let us know anything that's on your mind or anything that you think we should be talking about. We really do love hearing from you. That's it for this week. We will see you again next week. Stay safe and take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.